all got that voice in our head that tells us we can't do stuff. But some people are just better at not listening to it. And by sitting down with those people, asking them questions, and then you know, recording it and blasting it out on the internet, perhaps, maybe, I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Hey guys, welcome back to Closure Optional. I don't have a guest for you this week, unfortunately. Um, my guest was uh, going to be a, a sex worker or a private escort, uh, among other things. She does other stuff too. Um, but one of the main things that she does is practices the art of cock worship. Now, I may sound a little bit sarcastic when I say that because, yeah, obviously I'm a little bit skeptical. I've practiced my own forms of cock worship, I suppose, in my life, but uh, I don't know if I'd call it that. More like, I hope that you love me. You know, like, maybe me doing this is going to make me feel more connected and in love with you and that we're going to be happily ever after and we can, you know, pretend like we're not going to die sometime in the future. But she, unfortunately has come down with a case of bronchitis and wasn't able to come and do the podcast. So we've had to reschedule to another time, but we are going to do the podcast. So you will still have that glorious titillating conversation. And I could tell you about all the times that I've had sex for money, um, but the podcast would be over pretty quick because uh, I don't think in my, at least that I'm aware of that I've actually done that. I've had sex for a lot of very despicable reasons though. And I'm certainly not judging anyone who has sex with anyone for money. As long as it's an honest exchange and both of you know exactly what's going on, fucking go for it. I don't see a problem with it. Uh, you know, as long as it's not causing severe trauma and repressed <laughs> damage to your psyche, go for it. Um, I know that I've had sex for a lot of disgusting reasons, like, you know, trying to make someone love me more or uh, hope make myself feel better about myself, you know, a little bit of... What the fuck are they doing out there? It's Sunday. Who mows the lawn in the rain? Or it's not even mowing the lawn. They're whippersnippering. Sorry if that's obnoxious. Also, I have a cold, so that's also going to be cute and obnoxious for you. Anyways, none of those things are the point today. I'm not going to be talking about sex today. Instead, I'm going to be talking about just another sexy and exciting topic, the war on drugs. Um, it's not because I'm obsessed with drugs and that I love drugs myself, although those two things are probably, you know, slightly accurate. Um, this, uh, I wanted to talk about some of the ideas that are in this amazing book that completely changed my life when I read it a few years ago called Chasing the Scream by an investigative journalist called Johan Hari. I will have the links to this on my website and everywhere. And also, Johan um, is going to be on the podcast uh, mid-November sometime, so he will well, I'll be able to ask him all the questions that we possibly could have about the drug war and his uh, investigations therein. Um, and he's just written another book called Lost Connections, which is also having a look at some of the core foundations of anxiety disorders and depression. Um, he, this guy's in a, has done some fucking amazing work in this arena, and basically, and he's done a, also a great TED talk about it called Chasing the Scream: uh, Rethinking the Causes of Addiction. I'll have a link to this as well on my post. But essentially, this book, Chasing the Scream, is all about the origins of the drug war and the real root causes of what probably causes addiction in his findings. Um, 
I, when I first discovered this book, I was a fucking mess. Um, and reading this book and able to just sort of just have the clarity of mind to realize that I'm not a victim, but I'm also not a piece of shit for having some substance troubles and some addictive tendencies that probably the greater cause for why I was uh, addicted to alcohol and avoiding my life constantly was because I was really dealing with some pretty severe psychological issues that I was not willing to deal with. And once I made that realization and spent a little bit more time dealing with the core reasons why I felt like I needed to escape my life, I ended up figuring out much healthier ways of escaping my life. No, I'm just kidding. I stopped escaping my life and figured out that, uh, you know, I needed to take better care of my mental and physical health. And by a product of that, my dependency on drugs and alcohol sort of faded away. And now I need to clarify here that I was never an alcoholic and I was certainly never addicted to any drugs. I, I, I would love to say that I don't have an addictive personality, but what I was addicted to and still kind of continue to be is this feeling of like connection and affection and quashing this kind of like weird, hopeless emptiness that lives inside me. And one of the things that I use to deal with it is creativity, uh, making stupid videos or drawing or making paintings or doing this cute little podcast, whatever it is, like somehow it kind of stops that ache inside my chest that there's no meaning to life and there's no reason for me to exist. And anytime I'm not doing something creative, I tend to get this, this ache. And for a long period of my life, I had such low self-esteem and such low self-belief and such kind of poor mental health that I could, I didn't have the confidence to try and do anything creative. So I spent all of my time trying to exist in a world where I felt no meaning. I felt no connection to anything around me. And I just got more and more hopeless and felt like fucking just giving up, that there was no reason for me to exist. So it, it seems so stupid. I mean, it's such a privileged and nonsensical thing to say. It's not like there were bombs being dropped on my house and I was in pain constantly and I wanted to die. I was in like this weird psychological state of just numbness, just fucking empty, hopeless numbness. And every once in a while, I'd have the courage to make something. And if it mattered and if it felt good to me, then um, I'd feel good for a little while. And then all of a sudden, I realized that that feeling made me feel better. So I just keep like going back for, to it, needing it to save me. And if it couldn't save me, if I couldn't make the painting that day, then I'd start drinking and hope that I could write some like drunk, hopeless poetry and write about the pain in my heart and all the fucking crazy shit that, you know, 20 year olds do. Um, and I, so I spent a lot of my time avoiding my loneliness by being in relationships with people that weren't right for me or seeking out relationships and attention and affection from people that weren't right for me. And I became addicted to that feeling. Then I became addicted to food. I, you know, it's just this constant aching cycle for me to feel better when really what I really absolutely needed to do is acknowledge that I was ha exhibiting this behavior and needed to turn the attention inwards, figure out what was making me so unhappy, and then do something about it. And it took a long time. And I, I, I'd say this book was one of the first catalysts for me to realize that I needed to make that change internally. And then um, doing Muay Thai, well, I guess, I don't know, four years ago, three years ago, um, 
was one of the major starters in this direction when I just first realized that if I put my mind to something and tried to do something, I could do something healthy for the inside of me. And I could get that endorphin release without doing something like, you know, drinking a bottle of whiskey and then crying on my balcony writing shitty poetry. And that happened many nights of the week. <laughs> so anyways, um, what I wanted to talk about today um, is I'm basically going to kind of paraphrase and summarize what Johan sort of covers in Chasing the Scream and uh, in conjunction with some of the stuff that I've read about and understood over the course of the past four years. I've been sober now for three years and during the last four years of me trying to figure out how to sort my life out. Um, so most of the stuff that I'm talking about here comes from his book, which again is called Chasing the Scream. Uh, also there's a great documentary on this called The House I Live In. It's on YouTube, so you can just Google it. Um, I'll also have the links to all this stuff on my website. Uh, there's another great book about this called The New Jim Crow and, uh, the research of Dr. Carl Hart and Dr. Gabor Mate. I don't really know how to say that. I've only ever seen it written down. Gabor Mate or Gabor Mate. I don't know. Anyways, I'll have links to all this stuff, so if you want to look into any of this in further detail, please do. And I uh, will be having Johan on the podcast in uh, November sometime, so we'll be able to talk more in detail about the shit that I'm going to introduce to you today. So, one of the theories that I've got on this, and it just was an insane realization um, when I read this book, that if you are a black person in America and you are not interested in reforming the drug laws, or you are a cop who enforces the drug laws in America, you are contributing to the continual subjugation of your people that has been going on for fucking way too long. It's insane how deeply founded the drug war is in racist policies and the subjugation of minorities in the United States. And what's so creepy and scary about this is that those policies that are founded in deep racism from the United States and judgment and prejudice are now the template and the main enforcing power for all global drug laws across the entire planet. And some of these countries, including Indonesia, have got some of the harshest drug laws and they are the very people who would be subjugated in the 1920s, 1940s, 1960s for these very same drug laws. So I, I, also, if you think this is a bit silly and it's something that doesn't interest you or doesn't have anything to do with you, I'm telling you, this, the war on drugs and the policies behind them are deeply entrenched in some very systematic fucked up things that are going on in the world around us. And they really do impact everyone. This isn't just about me wanting to be able to smoke weed at my house rather than um, having to go to a bar to get drunk, which I would love very much. And I really enjoy it when I go back to Colorado and it's okay for me to just smoke weed wherever I want to or eat weed or do what I want and not feel like I'm harming anybody else or I'm a fucking dirty criminal. But this is way bigger than that. So, I just made a claim that the drug war is racist and the global UN policies on drugs uh, all started from this one racist idea. And uh, so I'll, hopefully I'll try and figure out how to explain that to you now. Um, Johan starts his book by telling the story of a 12-year-old boy 
who was living in Pennsylvania that experiences the screams of his addicted neighbor. And the neighbor's husband comes running down the stairs and goes, fuck, kid, go to the pharmacy and go get this fucking medicine because this girl, this lady's a psychopath and she's losing her shit. And these are just like earth-rattling, heart-wrenching screams of an addict going through probably withdrawals and probably the pain of fucking being a human being in 1904. So this little kid, Harry gets in the cart and buggy, the horse and buggy, and runs into town, grabs the opiates, brings them back, gives them to her, and then the lady finally stops screaming. This shit stuck with him for the rest of his life and informed all of the drug policies going forward. Now, that's not inherently racist. I get that. And I actually kind of understand where this kid was coming from. Um, my mom, my mom's not a drunk by any means, but she, yeah, she drinks too much probably sometimes, a lot sometimes. And she, I have this, oh God, I have this atrocious memory of one time being way too old to want to get, see the release of a Harry Potter book. But, um, I was way too old for this. I was old enough to drive a car. Let's put it that way. So I still had my learner's permit, but I was 15, I think. And, uh, they were having a midnight release at one of the bookstores in my town of the latest Harry Potter book. And so my mom was like, oh, cute, Lorna, we'll, I'll take you down there. It's going to be fun. She can go. She was a um, reporter for the local newspaper, and she goes, yeah, cool, I'll take you down there, and we can go and meet the kids, and I'll do a story on the midnight release of the new Harry Potter book. So she gets hammered drunk, and then I drive us into town on my learner's permit to uh, go get this book. And I'm standing in line and my mom kneels down to interview like a fucking six-year-old. And I'm already that embarrassed that I'm 15 and waiting anxiously for a Harry Potter book at midnight, which is embarrassing enough. Um, And that she kneels down to interview a kid, ask him some questions, and she just falls backwards on her ass and rolls back. She doesn't even have time to get her hands out, nothing. She just falls back over. And I've asked her about it now and she still doesn't really remember it even happening. So... It's not, and it's not like she was a drunk or anything. It's not like she was this like public embarrassment. It was just that moment of deep shame and embarrassment that someone I love and someone who's supposed to be guiding me in this world could be that fucking embarrassing and not deal with her own shit, go out into public and make an absolute fool of herself like that. Obviously, she doesn't remember. She doesn't give a shit, but... I still think about that all the time. And when I see really drunk idiots, I think still at the core of me, I just fucking hate that feeling. I hate that shameful stupidity that happens when people just get onto that. I don't know. Anyways, what I'm trying to say is that I empathize a tiny little bit with this young Harry Anslinger at 12 years old seeing what the effects of an addiction can actually be like. Not saying, however, that what he did after that was justified. And I think he's a piece of shit. Anyways, so what's creepy about that is that Harry Anslinger went on to become the head of the U.S. Department of Narcotics. And all of his policies that he enacted therein from 1926, well, 1930 onward, still dictate our entire drug policy today, including the U.N.'s drug policies and the global drug conventions and the Global Narcotics Acts, and the same things that are still impacting the world's ability to recognize cannabis as a legal medicine, all of that shit. 
1914, when World War I broke out, it was fucking mayhem and chaos, and everybody was stressed, everybody's concerned, nobody knows where they're going to get enough money to fund all this shit, and the world's exploding on the opposite side of the planet. And so at the time, the U.S. government passes what they called the Harrison Act, and it was a way of regulating and taxing opium and coca products. Um, and this thing, the idea behind this, it was more or less a some way of clinging on to the sanity of blaming a chemical rather than human beings for being just completely fucked and atrocious out there in the world. They needed something to blame. There was a lot of unrest about black people who were apparently using cocaine and going crazy and a lot of unrest about Chinese men that were having sex with white women because they were luring them in to opium dens. And this is all documented, um, actual real life reasons why they put this straightforward to the government. And what's really interesting about that is that uh, when they actually gone back, Wikipedia told me this, when they actually went back and did a study on who was actually using cocaine at the time and white people were <laughs> using co cocaine way more than black people at the time. but um, And most of the people, most of the heroin addicts and opium addicts were all white women, upper class white women. So, you know, there you have it. So they, obviously none of the public policy was founded in science or scientific research at all. It was all a fear campaign based on the other, that this group of the other are doing something that we don't like and it freaks us out and there's a war going on and we're all shit scared so we've got to blame something that's external to human beings because the world is a fair, just place and it's got to be this external crazy shit that's fucking people up, not people themselves being crazy psychopaths. So in an attempt to control the situation, by they first passed the Harrison Act, then uh, they made it illegal to prescribe opiates to people who were exhibiting addictive behavior. They were thinking that if they didn't prescribe the opiates anymore and didn't let people have it anymore, then uh, it would probably just fade out and they would fizzle away and they'd stop using it. Of course, that's not what happened, is that you had a whole bunch of addicts that had their supply cut off and shit got crazy. Then... The next year, 1920, they went, actually, you know what? Alcohol is probably a problem too, so uh, fucking let's just cut that out too because it's obviously not the people that are insane or scared or upset that's causing them to use drugs and drink alcohol. It's the crazy chemicals inside this shit, so let's cut it out. So from 1920 to 1933 in the U.S., they enacted alcohol prohibition, and shit got fucking insane. It went crazy. According to Johan's books from some research that uh, somebody did, who I can't remember right now, alcohol prohibition caused an in a huge spike in the murder rates in the United States. And the only other time that there's been such a drastic spike in the murder rates in the United States was, believe it or not, 1970 to 1990, when, again, the war on drugs started with, uh, well, first of all, Richard Nixon passing this crazy bullshit and then Nancy and Ronald Reagan ramping it up with the old Just Say No campaign in the 80s. But anyway, let's get back to the, um, the main character at hand here, Harry Anslinger. So Harry uh, was tried to go be a part of the war, but he couldn't be a soldier um, because his brother threw a rock at his eye. <laughs> I think that's what Johan says in the book. I think he got a rock thrown at his eye, so he was blind in one eye. I don't know why I'm laughing at that. It's not fair, but, I mean, the guy was just such a fucking asshole. 
So I, I, it doesn't. Nobody deserves to be blind in one eye, but you know. So we went over to Germany and watched a bunch of soldiers being addicted to heroin, and he just reinforced this thought in his head that fucking this stuff is terrible, bad stuff. People aren't bad people. The war is not a bad thing. There's not a whole lot of psychological trauma going on. Instead, it's the heroin that's the real enemy here. So he came home, and because of the good work that he did over there, he got sent out to the Bahamas to try and deal with uh, drug problems there and alcohol prohibition. Uh the alcohol prohibition was a total fucking disaster. If anyone has done any research into this or even knows anything about it, it was an absolute nightmare. Obviously, it didn't work because alcohol is now illegal. And all it did was just create this gigantic bootleg black, black market. And one of the really interesting things about it, too, is that at the time, everybody was drinking beer, that beer was a popular choice in the United States. But instead of drinking beer because it was way too hard to bring beer um, in giant shipments to get 10 people drunk. Instead, they could bring through bottles of whiskey or hooch or moonshine, which were really highly concentrated forms of alcohol, and get 500 people drunk for the same truckload. So instead of prohibition causing a decrease in alcohol consumption and a decrease in drunkenness, it instead just increased the potency of the drug. Well, drug. Increase the potency of the alcohol. So people just ended up getting crazier and drunker. They had to stop the alcohol prohibition because the shit was just not working and things were getting out of control. But Harry Anslinger did such a great job for the Bureau that they were like, well, we need some real heavy hitters in here. He was so passionate because he was insane and he'd had traumatic experiences as a child in relation to drugs. So, okay, you know, his brain was damaged. Um. And so they said, all right, now you can be the head of the Federal Bureau of Prohibition. But uh, the prohibition's coming to an end, so we're going to change it to the Federal Bureau of no- Narcotics, and it's now your job to stop people from using cocaine and heroin. But the trouble was is that uh, the amount of people that were using cocaine and heroin um, were a tiny minority in the grand scheme of things, and there weren't enough people to keep his department alive. Uh, that were actually going to be causing any trouble and criminalizing it. So he was like, well, fucking obviously there's no alcohol prohibition. Everybody's just running rampant on the streets and all of the cool shit that we got to do before in uh, tracking down criminals and murdering people. We don't get to do that now because uh, there's not enough people around to attack. Now, I did want to go backtrack just a tiny little bit uh, to the core foundations of the racism that was going on at the time. So the only people that they were targeting at this point for using cocaine and heroin were black people, Chinese people, and Mexican immigrants. And the racism was so crazy at the time. And, And obviously, we have to take a little bit of a cultural context into play here. They had only abolished slavery in 1865, so they're still, what, 45, 50 years later, Uh, which isn't nothing. That's a pretty long amount of time to try and get your shit together and stop being, you know, insane. But uh, you were still kind of reeling from that fact. And so we do have to take a little bit of that consideration that the popular culture was still very much divided at the time. But just some of the things that they would say, I'll just bring up a couple examples from quotes from Wikipedia. They're gnarly. These are some actual entries from Harry Anslinger's notes that uh, they've got up on Wikipedia. 
colored students at the University of Minnesota partying with white female students, smoking marijuana, and getting their sympathy with stories of racial persecution. The result? Pregnancy. Two Negroes took a 14-year-old girl and kept her for two days under the influence of hemp. Upon recovery, she was found to be suffering from syphilis. Reefer makes darkies think that they're as good as white men. And he went on this fucking crazy campaign to get rid of jazz music because he thought that jazz music was representative of the crazy psychosis that weed made you have, that none of it made any sense, that rhythms didn't make any sense, and that these people couldn't be controlled. And you couldn't criminalize somebody for being black. You couldn't criminalize them for being Chinese because even in those fucked up, backwards, stupid times, people still acknowledged that these people were people. So instead of criminalizing them for being black or Chinese or Mexican, they decided to go after the common culture that seemed to be around them and make it out to be this crazy, disgusting, scary, wacky, insane-making drug that kills people and puts white people in danger. And what's funny about it, too, is that when they actually went back and did research on this later, white people were using these drugs more than black people. But the common thread at the time was that cocaine makes black people crazy and strong and violent and makes murderers out of them, so we have to stop it. I mean, the thought pattern was just fucking insane. But it's feeding off of the frenzy of fear at the time. So, I mean, it it makes sense. It's hard to look back at this stuff now and just not get completely insanely infuriated because it's so goddamn nonsensical. But, you know, in the context of the time, all right, I guess it kind of it worked for them at the time, whatever. It's still not right, but it was... It was a common thread at the time. So anyways, he, uh, Harry Anslinger gets this new position with the Bureau of Narcotics, and he goes, well, fuck, cocaine and heroin use isn't going uh, to get me anywhere, and I, I need to have this meaningful thing. He's got a little bit of the cute void that's in the inside of my heart, and it makes me, drives me to do podcasts and shit. I guess he needed to feel like he needed to you know, get drugs off the streets. So fair enough. He had this mission in his head and he knew that he could use the public hysteria at the time, fear of the other, the other color, the other people out there to feed this fucking crazy idea he had in his head that all drugs needed to be banned. So here's an example of one of the actual reefer madness campaigns that went out at the time. Again, from Wikipedia, because I do my research well. By the tons it's coming into this country, the deadly, dreadful poison that racks and tears not only the body, but the very heart and soul of every human being who once becomes a slave to it in any of its cruel and devastating forms. Marijuana is a shortcut to the insane asylum. Smoke marijuana cigarettes for a month, and what was once your brain will be nothing but a storehouse of horrid specters. Hashish makes a murderer who kills for the love of killing out of the mildest-mannered man who ever laughed at the idea that any habit could ever get him. So this is the common rhetoric at the time. It's fucking ridiculous. And it's it would be funny if it hadn't completely destroyed the lives of a lot of people <laughs> over the last 150 years. I mean, slavery lasted for 100 years in the United States, and the ramifications of it went on for much longer than that. Slavery was abolished in 1965, or sorry, 1865, and segregation still continued up until 1965. So that is a hundred years of turmoil from when the slaves were freed until they actually were more or less, well, politically given equal rights in the United States. 
And now, still today, these drug laws are founded in the exact same principles that slavery was founded on and segregation was founded on. So moving forward, we have approximately 100 years between the abolition of slavery and the end of the civil rights movement in 1965, where they got rid of most of the Jim Crow laws that had been put in place and the end of segregation. So now we're coming up to about 1965. Uh, This entire period of time, from 1955, there is major civil unrest, obviously. People, uh, and what was pretty incredible about it is even though uh, the black people had had such a fucking rough time of it, most of the protests that were going on at the time were nonviolent protests led by, obviously, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., But most of these were nonviolent protests, just bringing awareness to the simple fact that everyone said they were going to have separate but equal accommodations through these Jim Crow laws, and they never came about, that the discrimination was worse than ever. So uh, around the same time, again, we also have the Vietnam War, and we've got a whole bunch of hippies that are dissenting the reasons for going to war, and that it's a bad idea, and there's a shitload of civil unrest. We have... Uh, the government starts to kind of panic a little bit. They're doing some terribly shady shit. They've just ended segregation. They've just lost the civil rights movement pretty much, lost everything that they'd put into place to keep the black people separated from white people, and now what the fuck are they going to do? Because now you've got a whole bunch of white people who are doing their own research and realizing that the government's full of shit, and they're dissenting against the government as well not going to war, smoking a bunch of weed. They're taking psychedelic drugs and thinking that I don't know, plants are talking to them, that we're all one, that we should all love each other, and that separation is not a healthy thing for anybody. So the government gets together and they go, well, fuck, we can't make it illegal to be black or Mexican. We can't make it illegal to have free speech. So the only thing we can really do is make it illegal and crack down harder on people that use drugs because those crazy hippies out there are smoking weed, so let's get crazy. Let's say that the weed is the reason why all these people are dissenting, not because they're angry for an unjust war, obviously, and the unjust treatment of a giant, (laughs) humongous group of the population, potentially up to 40% of our population. Let's instead crack down harder on drugs. So they ramp up the war on drugs. This is President Nixon's campaign, 1970. And there is a great book about this called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And there is a whole bunch of evidence to suggest that the ramping up of the drug war in 1970 was literally a correlation between the end of the civil rights movement and the separate, uh, the end of segregation. But, um, that's a whole nother topic as well. So, uh, they start cracking down hard on uh, black neighborhoods and urban neighborhoods that are uh, poorer and probably more susceptible to drugs. And now one question here, and this is a little bit what Johan goes into in the whole second half of his book, but I'm not going to have time to talk about it today. But what are the reasons why people would be using more drugs in these neighborhoods? Why are black people potentially using more drugs. First thing first is that all of the evidence suggests that white people and black people use drugs at exactly the same rate, that there is very little difference between use of drugs across any kind of racial group. But the uh, prevalence of addiction and violent crime in poorer neighborhoods is higher. And that is usually caused by the separation 
of people, disassociation from their families, pain, trauma, childhood trauma. There's a humongous world of psychological issues that usually lead to addiction and also the lack of ability to progress in the world. So if you're struggling to get a job, but the guy in the corner will give you some money for shuffling some crack, you're going to go to that guy in the corner because at some points, even the drug dealers are looking after their communities. They're helping people make money inside their communities where the government won't let you have a job because you're black. The government won't let you play your music because you're a jazz musician and you're probably a filthy pot smoker. So because of the disenfranchisement of these people, it ended up actually boosting the central black market economies inside these lower class neighborhoods. So it wasn't just black people necessarily, but it was poor people who had become disenfranchised from the environment and their easier way out was through drugs and through money or and the money they could make with drugs. Um, so then uh, towards the end of this, you also have Tim Leary and the, pro- the prohibition of psychedelics. And I'm not going into this one because um, Tim Leary was a fucking maniac and he fucked it up for everybody. Really psychedelics had a, a lot of promising research and, initially into some uh, marriage counseling, especially MDMA, um, and the, into some of the study of psychosis, of schizophrenia, um, and mental health. There was some very promising introductory research in there. And then Tim Leary, who was a professor at Harvard, decided that everybody in the world needed to be able to have acid, and he just went fucking nuts and started giving out acid to everybody and started, you know, the, this... 60s hippies revolution and pretty much just put a terrible taste in everybody's mouth for psychedelics and shut it down until only recently when they've just started to talk about using psychedelics again in psychotherapy. Um, so he fucking cooked it as well. Um, we're not all even here. And, and the use, the uncontrolled, undiagnosed use of psychedelics in the grand scheme of things is not necessarily a good thing. I'm a huge proponent of using uh, altered states of consciousness to investigate your own consciousness, but I don't think that it should be taken willy-nilly. And I know personally myself, when I'm not feeling great in the inside of my brain, the last thing I want to do is take a bunch of acid and try and explore the scary fears that I've got going on inside my head. Anyways, so then we move forward from there. We're at just after 1970. Now we're in 1980. 1980, Richard Nixon and, um, oh, sorry, uh, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan and the fucking Just Say No campaign. I don't know if any of you guys remember this, um, but when it was still lingering around when I was in school many years later, and we we would have these huge like conferences where the entire school, the primary school. I mean, you're literally you're talking to uh, ten to eleven year olds. Um, the primary school is in this room. There's a guy on stage talking about stuff, playing songs, and then telling you how bad drugs are. And then they'd have us all line up and go and sign a piece of paper that said we were never, ever going to touch drugs or alcohol in our entire lives. You're asking an 11-year-old to sign a contract that they're never going to use drugs. And what I found incredibly ironic about that is that um, only a few weeks later, a kid from California moved over to our school, and he was super cool and different and interesting. And his big brother sold weed. And he brought weed to school, and I was like so excited and amazed by it. Probably a little precursor to uh, the future of my life and the kind of people I was going to fall in love with, but that is also a story for another day. (laughs) 
despite having signed that piece of paper, it made no difference to me because I wanted to impress the hot kid from California. <laughs> I was so happy to smoke weed with him at 11. <laughs> Anyways. Um, so we have this, all of a sudden in 1980, we have this introduction of the horrors of crack cocaine. Um, now I, I don't know if anybody knows much about the manufacture of crack cocaine, but it is cocaine. Crack and cocaine are exactly the same thing biochemically. They are identical. Now the trouble with what happens with prohibition, and this is the same thing that happened with alcohol and Johan, uh, describes this really in a really lucid way in the book. Um, and I'll try and paraphrase it here, but basically what happens when you prohibit a substance is that it takes, it's harder to get into the country. It's harder to get across the country and it's harder to get to the people that need it. So at the time before alcohol prohibition happened, beer was the drink of choice for everybody in the United States. But once prohibition happened, it would take so much energy to get giant kegs of beer and giant truckloads to all of the people in the world that needed to, or in the United States that needed to be drinking it. So instead, they started creating moonshine and bootlegging whiskey because it was, you could get 100 people drunk for the same amount of getting 10 people drunk on beer. So the potency of the drug goes skyrocketing through the roof because it has to come in in more compact forms and it's harder to get through. So it doesn't mean that less drugs are getting through. In fact, what it means is that the same amount of drugs, if not more drugs are getting through, but they are a much higher potency and much more addictive by their nature. So uh, crack cocaine starts happening. Um, oh, and, and sorry, what Johan says inside the book is that um, uh, an easy way to tell this, and you guys might remember it. I don't know in Australia if you guys would remember it as much because in the United States, the legal drinking age is 21. So at college uh, or university football games, you aren't allowed to bring alcohol into the stadium. And all of us were underage. So you weren't allowed to be publicly drunk or anything, obviously, because we we're still 18, 19 at, at university, but the legal drinking age was 21. So we would just get hammered drunk at home, drinking vodka, just shots of vodka and bringing in whiskey in a flask into the stadium rather than, you know, just drinking beer casually like a normal person. So I don't know if you remember that from when you were growing up, but obviously because you weren't allowed to have it, you resorted to getting way drunker as quick as you could on the harder shit as possible because you weren't going to be able to walk around getting drunk out in public. It makes perfect sense. It happens every single day. So anyways, um, what crack is, is basically just a cheaper, more condensed form of cocaine. It's easier to transport because it's in a rock instead of in a loose powder, and it was cheaper to sell. So in poor neighborhoods, not necessarily just black neighborhoods, but for the most part, black Mexican neighborhoods, immigrant neighborhoods, and people that had already become disenfranchised from uh, the general population were more likely to have crack in their um, communities than people in the suburbs, the white rich people who were all still using cocaine. So again, the statistics show that black people, white people, brown people all tend to use drugs at a similar rate. But the prevalence of crack cocaine was in lower income neighborhoods. So Reagan goes, nah, that's it. We've got higher enforcement for crack. Um, crack is this dangerous, insane, highly addictive form of cocaine. It's terrible for you. And we've got to go and, cra and fucking crack down on it. 
crack down on the crack. So he ramps up the policing policies in urban neighborhoods. And what Michelle um, Alexander is saying in her book, um, The New Jim Crow, she said that uh, according to her sources, there was no crack cocaine on the streets in urban neighborhoods before this campaign started. So the campaign started this hysteria about crack cocaine before crack even got to the streets. Then all of a sudden there was this insane surge of crack use in these uh, communities. And then of course, major policing got, gone into it. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever listened to Dave Chappelle stand up. Um, I can't remember which one it was killing them softly, probably a long time ago. And he talks, he's got a little bit about how the police will come in and, um, then just sprinkle crack on the perpetrator and then escape. It's, it's a super great bit. Obviously that was a terrible reenactment of it, but he's not fucking joking. This is actually founded in reality. This is what they literally did. From 2000, in 2010, when she wrote that book, for the previous 30 years, there was an increase in incarceration from 300,000 people to 2.2 million people incarcerated in the United States over a 30-year period. She says that um, three out of four black men in Washington, D.C. were going to be in prison. Three out of four, that's four people sitting inside the room. Three of them will have been to prison or are going to prison at some point. Um, and this was not necessarily, this is not just because they were policing more in urban neighborhoods, cracking down on it more in urban neighborhoods, but also because the actual laws that were written into place for judges in sentencing, if you got caught with crack cocaine, the sentence was a hundred times harsher than the sentence for cocaine, for powdered cocaine. So if you are a suburban businessman that got caught with cocaine and you got sentenced to 10 days in jail, if you are the exact same person addicted to cocaine in the inner suburbs and you are using crack cocaine and you got caught with the exact same quantity, the exact same substance, it's just in a rock form instead of a powdered form, you would be sentenced to a hundred times that. So if it was 10 days in jail, you are going for, I don't know, a thousand days in jail. I think that's math. I think that's how math works. That's fucking crazy. But luckily since then, they have changed those laws a little bit because they've realized that it was totally inherently racist and irrational. Um, but the, the ratio still is to this day now, 18 to one. So if you get caught with crack cocaine, you will be sentenced to 18 times the prison sentence as somebody who gets caught with powdered cocaine, even though they are the identical substance. Anyways, um, so the other trouble with this is that once you get caught with drugs, it's a federal offense. So you now suddenly have a felony. Every time you get you apply for a job, you have to say whether or not you've been convicted of a felony. Every person that's been convicted of a felony isn't eligible for the majority of normal people jobs. Also, employers don't want to hire you, and they can also hire you. It is legal for them to hire you at lesser uh, wages. So you can make a potentially a 40% less than somebody else in the exact same job as you just because you have prior convictions. So what does that naturally do, obviously? If you've been convicted of one of these crimes, which one 
uh, three out of four black people at the time in Washington, D.C. were likely to be convicted of one of these crimes, even nonviolent drug crimes like having a joint or having some small amount of crack that possibly was sprinkled on them by a cop. They would be likely sentenced to some amount of time in prison with a federal record. Then they can't get a job, or if they do get a job, they're getting paid no money at all. And while they were gone, obviously, they, are, uh, they were out in prison. They have to completely restart their life. So when they come back, one of the easiest ways to make a good quick amount of money is to go back into the drug trade again. Then if they get caught, this is where they introduce what they called mandatory minimum sentencing. And this is where everything got really fucked up. This is why the prison population exploded so much. It was not just that they increased police patrols, that they were cracking down more on urban neighborhoods, or they were planting crack if they were... Um, it was actually the way that they were sentencing people. So they were sentencing them at 100 times to one, first of all. So people were in jail for longer. And then when they got out, they weren't able to get jobs. So they were likely pushed back into the drug trade, or at least that's what their environment was um, fueling. And it seemed to be kind of the easiest, most normal way. Also, as a side note, most people find learn how to do drugs better and sell drugs better in jail. Because if you imagine uh, your education system, when you learn how to uh, read and write at school, you also learn how to be a criminal with other criminals in jail. So, you know, that just like kind of logically makes sense. The more time you spend in school, the more you learn how to write and read. The more time you spend in jail, the more you learn how to be a criminal. But anyway, so when you get out of jail, you're likely to probably uh, end up with a second offense. Now, the second offenses, this is where they introduce mandatory minimum sentencing. So for your second offense, they decided that fuck it, irrespective of your life circumstances, no matter what caused you to be in here, no matter what, what your history is or what your prior convictions were, if you, go to, uh, if you go to court for the second time, the judge can't take any of your life circumstances into account. Instead, they have to give you a mandatory sentence of potentially 20 years in prison. It depends on the quantity, but for certain quantities of cocaine, for example, or, or weed even, it was 20 years minimum. So this is a kid, say, gets caught with a joint one year, goes to jail for three months, whatever, comes out, good, does, has good behavior, whatever, gets caught at a party with another kid smoking a joint. The cops are in a bad mood. They arrest him. He goes to jail for 20 years. The next time he comes out, his entire life is fucked. He's just spent 20 years in jail. He comes out. He's trying to restart his life. The only th way he's going to get back and probably there's a lot of pain and anxiety and separation, whatever. Maybe he's an addict. Maybe he's not an addict. Maybe he just wants to numb his life a little bit by smoking a bit of weed. The next time he gets caught, if he does, minimum life imprisonment. That's it. Luckily, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court in the last, I can't remember when it was, probably 2014-ish, they uh, had a look at these laws and realized that they were insane. And they have now given back the judges their jurisdiction over this. And judges are allowed to choose whether or not to enforce mandatory sentencing or not, because they realized that that was fucking crazy and destroying people's lives. And that has just by um, taking or giving the judges back their options of whether or not to give mandatory sentencing, they have reduced the prison populations a little bit since then. So that's really good. Uh, it's still not good enough, but obviously better. Um, so Jesus Christ, I've been talking for almost 52 minutes. That's crazy. Um, I will, I'm going to 
end with one more legal thing and then a tiny bit of psychology and then I'm done for the day. Uh, Thanks for hanging in there if you've been here this whole time. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about, which is the last lead on from this drug war and another reason why it's totally crazy and unjust, this is a concept called civil asset forfeiture. And basically what this is, is that the police can take your shit if they think that it might be related to drugs and you don't have to be convicted of a crime for them to take your shit. So they introduced this in the last, I think probably only 10 years and Australia unfortunately is not exempt. They also have these policies in Australia. They call them something slightly different, but it is uh, exactly the same thing. Pretty much the cop pulls you over. He has every right to ask you if you're carrying any cash in the car. If you say no, and they think that you're lying, they can say that they smell weed in the car and they're going to search your car. If they find any cash in your car, they have every right to take that cash, write you a receipt for it, and say you can take it up with the court if you want to. The amount of time and money that it will take you to get that money back from the police is not worth you doing. So somebody who, say for example, is driving with $5,000 in cash to go pay for a new car that they're buying on eBay. If you get pulled over and the cops find that money, they can take that money and say that they think it was related to drugs and you will never see that money again. So unfortunately, again, this targets people who are likely to not have any money because they're the people that can't fight it in court. They can take your house. They can take anything they want. In the last... uh, so in the last since 2001, so the last 17 years, in the United States, $2.5 billion have been taken from civilians by cops in cash alone, just cash alone. Some of it may have been related to drugs, sure, but some of it may not have been related to drugs. And the real crime here is that none of it has to go through the judici- oh God, judiciary system. So none of it has to go through the courts. They just have to say, we think that this is probably related to drugs and you have to prove that it isn't. And so you have to go to a court to prove that your money wasn't guilty. Where when you are a person that goes to jail, you have to prove that you were guilty. They have to prove you were guilty. In this case, your stuff is assumed guilty until you prove it innocent. And if you don't have the money to prove it innocent, go fuck yourself. So the cops have crazy incentives to do this. The cop has a bureaucratic process in order. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not also generalizing on all police officers here. Uh, don't get me wrong. I think I know a couple very good police officers that are really good people. But um, police departments have a lot of bureaucracy to get through to get funding for various things that they need in their offices. Luckily for them, if they need a new police car to do their police work and their cars are fucked, they can write it up in the budget, send it to the commissioner, and they'll get a new police car. But the way civil asset forfeiture works is that they use it, they use the assets that they've got for stuff that they can't get in the budget. So it's stuff that they fucking don't need. If they needed it, they could go to the commissioner and get budget approval for it and just get it for their police station. So they need new equipment, they need new uniforms, whatever, they need new hats, they can get that from the commissioner. But when they need a new Slurpee machine or a fucking armored tank, they buy it with our money that they stole while doing a traffic stop. (laughs) It's fucked. 
Anyways, my God, that's enough of me ranting about that. Uh, so uh, the second, the, another major key point in Johan's book, and and the reason why this was such a life changing book for me is actually that he he goes into the details of what the core root causes of addiction are. But I don't have time to go through all that today. Obviously, I've talked to your ears off enough for one day. Um, but uh, maybe it's a conversation for another time. But one thing I did want to say is that uh, there is a psychological phenomena called victim blaming, and this happens because. In order for us to feel safe and comfortable in this world, we like to assume that the world is fair and just. So when we see somebody who is a degenerate or homeless or an addict, we automatically go into this mode of victim blaming where we say that person must have fucked up because if they didn't fuck up, then this could happen to anybody, including me. So the world is a just, fair place. That person must have fucked up in order to get this shitty life circumstance that they have. The unfortunate thing behind that is that that's absolutely, totally untrue. Unfortunately, the world is not fair and just. Unfortunately, shitty things happen to good people that cause them to lash out in really fucked up and bad ways really self-harming, self-damaging ways. I know it personally from my own experience. Alienation and contempt actually leads to addiction. The more you separate somebody and treat them as uh, scum and slime and ignore them and shame them, the more they need to feel to soothe that pain and escape their life. If you give them something meaningful and meaningful relationship, some kind of connection to something greater than themselves, they will eventually pull themselves through. And there've been tons of experiments, especially in Portugal, where this has actually worked. But uh, one of the craziest statistics that Johan put in this book uh, that I thought was really incredibly interesting is uh, the prevalence of child abuse and the incidences of addiction later on in life. This is fucking crazy. So this is a direct quote right out of his book. These scientists discovered that for each traumatic event that happened to a child, they were nearly two to four times more likely to grow up to be an addicted adult. Nearly two-thirds of injection drug use, they found, is the product of childhood trauma. This is a correlation so strong that the scientists said that it's of an order of magnitude rarely seen in epidemiology or public health. It means that child abuse is as likely to cause drug addiction as obesity is to cause heart disease. So just think about that for a second. Childhood trauma is the main key indicator for addiction. Not that somebody's a piece of shit and they fucked up in their life. Most likely, they were a normal kid that grew up in a shitty environment where somebody did something fucking bad to them. They didn't have the psychological resources or help or wherewithal to deal with the problem at the time, and it turned into a deep, aching psychological pain that they had to numb in later times as an adult. So compassion, having a compassionate and non-restrictive drug policy turns out probably to be the better way of handling drugs in the future. Criminalization and prohibition have not worked. They don't work. In Portugal, uh, they've decriminalized all drugs, and in the process of doing so, they've halved their heroin use. They had an epidemic of heroin use, HIV, and overdose deaths, and they've halved it. On the other hand, in the United States... In the last 10 years of the drug war, heroin use has doubled. 
And now we're dealing with crazy prescription opiate problems. Uh, all of the money that they've saved in uh, stopping criminalizing drugs and police forcing, they've used to help addicts recover, give them uh, job incentives, give employers incentives for employing addicts. So people that are recovering addicts or in treatment programs, their employers will get a subsidy from the government so that they keep them ongoing. So a, a cafe would make a huge tax tax break and a giant sum of money at the end of the year from the government if they've employed an addict. And for the most part, what they've found is that these addicts are so grateful to have a job and are glad to be receiving their drugs that they uh, actually do their jobs better than most normal people. So anyway, at the end of all that, um, the main takeaway of all of that is that uh, the drug war is founded in crazy racist and archaic policies that are still running today that were built off of the end of slavery and prohibition in the United States. And they run every drug policy in the world right now. Every country that tries to get away from it, including Portugal, including Uruguay, and including Colorado and the United States, go up against the federal government and get banned by the UN Treaty on Narcotics, which is completely founded in Harry Anslinger's original ideas. We've got to think of a different way of dealing with this. And there are real models, especially in Portugal and also in Uruguay, where uh, Uruguay has actually legalized drugs, but in Portugal where they've completely decriminalized the use of drugs. And it is proving to be very effective and very helpful for drug uh, drug addiction and rehabilitation. So compassion and making drugs probably a health policy rather than a criminal policy is the right way forward. And uh, there are a billion ways that we can do this. And there are a bunch of groups in Australia that are working on this right very now. And if any of what I've said resonates with you or makes any sense to you and you want to take any action, by all means, have a look at any of the stuff that I've got linked on my website or sign that petition just to stop the criminalization of the use of cannabis in Australia at the moment. Um, and Jesus, thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with me that whole time. Uh, legalization, there is some ups and downs to legalization. And also uh, you have to be careful not to al- only talk on one side of it, but there's just not enough time for me to go into all of that today. But uh, we can talk about that another day. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please do share it around, tell your friends, whatever. I've got a Patreon page if you want to support what I'm trying to do. I'd appreciate it. Um, it'd be nice to know that uh, it's not that I, I need the money necessarily. I teach people Muay Thai and I do well with that. Uh, and I, I'm not asking for money because I think I need to get rich. More than anything, I'd like to know that what I'm doing has enough of an impact on other people that they want to contribute to it and help me out. And also I'd like to be able to take this podcast to do cooler stuff with it, like big live podcasts or um, travel around and meet really interesting guests and people that are doing major things out there in the world. So if you have any interest in helping me out, um, obviously just share the podcast, tell your friends, or um, have a look at my Patreon page, which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Lorna Bremner. And for the cost of buying me a coffee a month, you can help support the podcast and help other people know that maybe what I'm doing is, you know, providing some value. Okay. Have a great week. We'll be back next week with a very fun guest, I promise. And I will hopefully be less sick. Okay. Have a good week. Talk to you again soon.